Uh, good morning, everyone. Another week, another podcast. I hope you're all well, enjoying the warmer weather that we're having. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge I'm from Wurundjeri country today and acknowledge the traditional custodians of your lands that you're listening to today and perhaps the lands of our speaker today. I'd love to introduce Catherine Sutler. I believe you're from Darug today. Good morning, everybody. Lovely <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about your teaching career, yourself, anything like that? Yes, uh, I started teaching a massive 37 years ago, a long time. <laughs> My first gig was in a really low socioeconomic uh, town, village, and what's called Mount Jewett in Sydney, and I had 2D. I had 17 children, all of whom could not read, and it was pretty pretty awesome at the same time as being pretty challenging. I must have done a great job because the next year they gave me 2A. And then I went, because some of those kids that were in 2D, or then the next year went up to 3C and 3B. So it was, mass, it was really just getting to know the kids and making sure that I was able to give them what they wanted to go. Then I left that and I went to England for a year and had an awesome time teaching around England and understanding what different systems of education was about. And then I taught in the Penrith district, again, a low to middle class area. And in there is when I actually started doing a lot of gifted and talented teaching, a lot of in-services for teachers, and I've got my final gig, which is um, assistant principal at Glenbrook, which, and I'm also on the, what is New South Wales called opportunity classes. So HPGE. And um, I've been, a, I sort of did that, I think, because I went to selective high school myself, and I saw that these, as I call them, special needs children weren't really being catered for and they really needed somebody who understood them, just like um, our kids need to be understood as well. And they, nobody really understood what they needed to do well. And that was where I started and that's where I still am today. And about 10 years ago, we found out for certain that we were Bunjilung. Yeah. And that was pretty awesome. <laughs> and oh. so that... And that journey continues today because uh, as a, it's sort of a journey where you're finding out who you are and what you are and all of those sorts of things as well. So that's a little bit about me. Oh, nice. Yeah, that really impacts your identity. So yes, it does. Well, it also impacts your uh, deep self, not oh. just your, of who you are and what you are. It actually uh, adds to who you are more on a more deep level as well. So that's been awesome. Yeah. Uh, today, the main topics we're going to talk about are the standards, the teaching standards, particularly 1.4 and 2.4. So I think we might start with 1.4, which reads, strategies for teaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students design and implement effective teaching strategies that are responsive to the local community and cultural settings, linguistic backgrounds and histories of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students. Take a breath, because whoa. <laughs> when I first read that, though, what jumps out at you from that standard? When, I, uh, when you said the, the, the thing that sticks out of me is design, design effective, the word effective strategies, because when I first started teaching, it was literally a one-size-fits-all. And we made a few adjustments that were convenient to me, more so than really convenient for the teacher. And I sort of decided that it was actually um, one of those things that uh, we really needed to do to, to meet the needs of the students. Um, what, we, what we 
uh, we sort of did what we wanted, really. <laughs> and, what, and one of the reasons that we went into teaching was because we can control our environment. We actually did what we thought was really good teaching, but it yeah. wasn't really addressing what the kids needed, just what we wanted to do. So that was my point. Yeah. No, like that to me kind of sounds like, you know how nowadays we're in this era of self-determination with Indigenous people and we consult with them. It kind of reminds me of what we do with students and ask for their feedback and listen to what they need. Whereas back then as teachers, you were sort of assuming, oh, I'm just going to do this. I think everyone needs this. Well, we were also dictated by the, the whole, all the schools had a scope and sequence as well. So the scope and sequence really dictated what we taught with little and minimal adjustments for students regarding whether what they really wanted or needed. And regardless of whether I was in the Mount Druid area, which was a low socioeconomic area, or in another school, which was middle class, we still just followed that scope and sequence. And mm. that's what we ticked off at the end of the term or as a checklist for what we were doing. And you adjusted, you know, when the kids were, um, if they were a slow, slower learners or they had issues, we didn't, we didn't really go into it. They just were catered to the best we could. Yeah. And, you know, they sat at the back of the room. And when you think about everything we know now about how important belonging, identity, and also lo locality is to Indigenous students, you can see how a lot of them wouldn't have excelled in that environment. You know, one size fits all doesn't really work for all of us. Particularly when um, the majority of teachers are white middle class. Back then we did have male and female, quite a lot of male and female. Now it's just female. And so you've got a white middle class, lot of people who are giving an their teaching for what because they were told to do that with not really looking at the needs of the child or the needs of the school or the needs of the community or any of that mm -hmm. that that just didn't happen in fact the parents were told um we know better than you <laughs> and it's funny because you think that as a person you really cannot step outside outside your lived experience so much of our teacher training now is encouraging you to consider students and their needs mm. Mm. So it's so interesting how quickly that's changed. Mm. It's been a gradual over the years kind of thing, really. You can see it from my point of view where it was something that I would automatically do, even though I wasn't supposed to be doing because I couldn't... Um, the understanding the psyche of the students always been something I've been really interested in because you don't get any learning if they're not ready to learn and mm -hmm. if you don't cater for those emotional needs as well yeah. so it was always something that I adjusted but not necessarily something that was the norm. Okay when you think about this standard though do you think it's more popular now than in the past you know considering the needs of particularly Indigenous students in your classroom? Yeah, yes, it is. But I wouldn't use the word popular. I think it's been a slow realisation that we needed to take into account the student's family situation, their background, their social, their social situation, just so that we wanted, teachers want to do well. And teachers want to do well by themselves, their students, the school, all of that kind of stuff. That's why we're in this gig. We actually want to do well. And we want to actually make sure that we do an optimum learning environment for the students. And I think it's morphed into where we realise that to do this well, we actually needed to take into consideration all those things. Now, I'm not showing that we didn't take them into consideration when I first mm. started teaching, but it wasn't like it is now. Now it's where we start. Before then, it was, I'm, I'm going to say afterthought, but it's not really an afterthought. It was just not, we just followed the curriculum. Yeah. And the students had to fit the curriculum, not the curriculum fit the student. True. And yeah, and it was, 
and my classroom was my domain. Woe mm. be it anybody who told me how to do something with my children because it just wasn't a done thing. I thought, walked into my room and it was my space and no one. Now we've got SLSOs, we've got community members, speech to follow this, OTs working in the classroom with the teacher, assisting students as they learn each day. And I find that it's more a collaborative effort. It's a community effort. And I think that's a good thing. So yeah. I think the way that we do it now benefits the child more deeply rather than just academically as well, because we're not just looking for the academics. Exactly. I think there's also been a shift away from fewer folks in academics and grades. Why do you think they emphasise local in that's an interesting one too, because we've been, when I first started teaching, it was all, the whole state did this, or oh. your whole region did this. So or, the scope and sequence was for the whole state sometimes. Yes, 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 yes. Oh. or for the whole region, or for the whole, it was, you know, it was, and then we made, we still made it fit our school, but at the same time, we still had to follow the certain objectives and outcomes that they wanted back then. They keep changing the name, but it's always still the same thing. and. So, but then I think they realise that one size doesn't fit all. Mm. What we are doing in Glenbrook, which is a high socioeconomic in many ways because we've got a lot of doctors and, and nurses and professionals, and what they're doing in Wil Kenya mm. doesn't fit, one size does not fit all. And yeah. yet the curriculum was one size fits all. Mm. And it wasn't making any use of understanding what the student, the area, the teacher even needs so yeah. that that was unique to them as well. And that's been a good shift. Yeah. The other thing that happened too was when we first started teaching, they did start talking about equality. And the idea was to educate the students for a set of objectives and values that would make them equal to everybody else. And that's the reason why they had the same of the curriculum for the whole, same syllabus across the yeah. whole state because they wanted it equal. Same thing, yeah. Yeah, it sounded good. It does. It yeah, sounds it does. good. It sounded like you didn't in need theory? to do that. Yeah. In theory. Yeah. But what they didn't really consider was whether the individual, the school or the community needed it, mm. wanted it, aspired to it, whether it fitted them or whether it didn't fit them, all of those sorts of things. It mm. just didn't happen that way. Okay. What we tend to use now is the word equality. Sorry, equity, not equality. Mm. And it looks at the individual needs of the students, the school, the community and teachers. And that's when that local word came in as well. Yeah. And it, um, hopefully what we're trying to do is create a learning environment that's inclusive, but unique to them and their learning needs and individual as well as community related as well. There's a really good cartoon called, it's, it says equity versus equality cartoon and that says it all and they're looking over at a football match and they're all standing on the equality one they're all standing on the same one box one's really tall one's middle size and one's short and you can't really see but mm. then on the equity box the man who's really tall standing on nothing the person who's in the middle standing on one box and the person who's really short standing on two and that was a big shift for a lot of teachers because you're saying this child's getting this and this one's not getting it and I don't think it's fair and that's an interesting word to come up out of it as well. It's yeah. not a matter of being fair. It's a matter of making sure that the education fits the child so they can achieve their optimum level and their optimum yeah, pot yeah. potential. And that'll look different for each student. It'll also look different for each school. It'll also look different for each area as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where that um, equity is a little bit, I think, a little bit easier to, to take than just equality. Put the two yeah. together. 
Do you know, I've even seen um, this year that cartoon, because they're standing in front of a fence, aren't they? Such when they yes. can't see some of the yes. time. I've seen the next version of that where the fence is removed. That's saying, let's, instead of focusing people to help people over the barriers, let's remove the barriers as well. Ah, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, maybe because we started with the fence and now this is the next level so we've started with the equality we've gone now to equity but then we've got equity removing barriers i like that That's yeah good. it's nice isn't mm. it yeah but i think mm. i also think personally in the standard it mentions local because we understand now that you know engaging indigenous students and communities it's so locally based like that's the mm. way we work kinship systems you've got country you're really related to it and to separate that from the school is like asking students to leave their identity at the door sometimes. So, mm. yeah. Well, it's incredibly interesting because, as we know, there are so many different mobs yeah. and each mob has their own identity. And to actually not say that that's important mm. is very detrimental. Yeah, because it really brings back the echoes of, you know, 50 to 100 years mm. ago. Mm. And then also when um, we're just starting to you know, confidently engage in education, mm. it's another mm. big knock. I think 100 mm. years ago, people were afraid to engage in education. It was places where, you know, your children did get stolen or you were rejected mm. or you weren't accepted. Mm. So now people mm. are sort of overcoming, I think, their hesitancy, like well-earned hesitancy. Mm. But the, like the involvement of local assists with that thing, we accept you and we're interested to know about this. How do you work with this? Let's make your education bespoke to you. And the bespoke's a really good word to use, actually, because one, it's current and people tend to make sure, understand that one. But it also means that it allows all the nuances that's associated with that to happen with it. Because if you're talking about bespoke shoes, you've got flat feet, size of your feet, size of your toes, whether you're flat-footed, all of, all of that, all the things that happen with your feet and they actually make it like they used to and make your the shoe fit you, not the other way around. <laughs> mm. um, in your school, how would you design, say, these effective strategies for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander learners? It's interesting because whenever we when we're looking at a standard and they use those words like design and implement and all the rest of it, we always go back to have a look at what just a simple definition of what that mm -hmm. mean, word means. And when you look at the word design, it's really interesting because just from the normal dictionary, it says to conceive or plan mm -hmm. out learning that has a purpose mm -hmm. and is devised with a simple function or an end in mind. And when you actually didn't define that, you then go, Oh, okay. So what I need to do is I need to put strategies in my school that have a purpose and that have a specific function to cater for specific need, specific need or an end in mind. And then to do that, what we do is that the first thing that we do is diagnose and see what, what we have, what we're actually doing. And we ask lots and lots and lots of questions, mm -hmm. lots of questions from us, lots of questions from everybody. So we actually ask, um, what, are, what are we trying to do? Why, what, what is our issue, whether it be academic or social or whatever? And what are the needs of our students and our community? Because we now realise you can't split those two apart. Mm. You can't just do the students, you have to do the community as well. And then also, what do they want us to achieve? What are we doing for all of them as well? What does our cultural setting look like? Who are our clients? And what are their histories? Mm. What's their linguistic background? And what is it that we want our students to learn, achieve or progress to um, by the end of all of this program or strategies that we're going to put into place? You know, by the end of the program, the unit, the cycle. How long will it take? <laughs> How can the community help? And that's always an awesome one. And yeah. who, do you, what, who do you need to be involved in this? What then goal do we have? And a big one, why? 
why are we doing it? Because if there's no why and there's not really any reason, it's just because you want to try something out and or because you think it's the right thing to do, then you're not really focusing on what you really need to focus on. Now, that's just the first one. So diagnose. <laughs> and after that, we investigate. So we become um, detectives and we investigate. First of all, we just look really closely at what we've got. So what we, what we already know and we see where we're at. Um, what previous learning have they had? What have they done before? Where, where do they sit academically, socially, emotionally as well with our students? What's our community sitting socially, emotionally and academically? How do they view the education in the area? What are we going to be doing with this in the future as well? And, and I know that sounds strange that right at the very beginning, you want to have a bit of a future uh, projection. But usually if it's done in isolation, it doesn't work. This is a whole long-term thing. So not, this might be the first thing in a long-term. So it's really good to actually have future projections as well. The next thing we also investigate is what skills do the teachers have? What do they know as well? Because if you've got a whole bunch of teachers that don't know anything about how to do all of this, then we need to upskill them. Before you even start doing anything with this, we need to, otherwise you're not going to fall down because you're not actually, uh, you don't have the teachers invested in this either. And what do we know about our community, their totems, their history? And again, what do they want? Mm. What do they want us to do with their students? We're asking them again, we're getting them involved in this process as well. So then we've got diagnose and investigate. The third mm. one we do is identify. So then we start asking questions and we consult with our teachers with our SLSOs, with our AECG, we are outside with Dalmari, with our local in Darug, we've got a group set, uh, our Aboriginal groups are people like Dalmari, Nagru, and Muru Mitagar, and we ask them. Then we also ask our speech therapists, our psychologists, our OTs, our parents, the elders of our community and other people in our community as well, particularly the parents of any children that we have in the school also. So it's a lot of asking, a lot of questions, a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls to ask them to invest in this as well. So then we've got diagnose, investigate, identify, and then we devise. Then we devise the plan. We use the information that we've collected to draft draft the plan, lessons, units, community events, workshops, whatever we're looking for. We also in, uh, we plan the in-services for the teachers and the community, not just for the, us though, we also make sure that um, the community is involved in all of this process by upskilling them as well. And um, that takes into account all the information that we've gathered. Then we consult again and we ask more <laughs> questions and we ask again, 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 and then we may put it into practice. Sometimes those one, two, and three, the diagnose, investigate, and identify, don't always go in those orders though. They sometimes move around and it may happen in a different order because we're going from where we're going from. Mm. Then we assess it. So after we've done a part of the plan, we assess as we're going along, and then we assess at the end. We update, we review, we um, alter, we ask questions again, and we ask questions of all of those. We ask questions of the students, the teachers, of the community, or anyone who, in, who is invested in the program. And so we, you've got to remember that plans are always fluid. And mm. we also say, you know what, that didn't work, so stop. Mm. We don't finish it just because we think we have to. If it's not working, we stop. We go and back and assess and revise and then say, let's start again. Okay. Then we ask what next? Because there's no reason for everything has got to build on. This is the scientist in me as well coming out. Because once you finish one scientific investigation, you go, where am I going to go to from here? It's got to actually have a building session associated with it as well. And where to next and why as well. 
So there's a really good paper by Vic, Vic Education called High Impact Teaching Strategies. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really, really good because it goes through a lot of the things that will help you to plan um, the strategies, the specific strategies that are in involved in the actual teaching, like questioning and differentiation mm -hmm. and uh, those actual teaching strategies. But the actual defining of the designing the, the actual how-tos we just we diagnose, investigate, identify, devise a plan and assess, and then use those high impact strategies from the Vic Education Report to mm. make sure that we're doing it well as classroom practice. Wow. <laughs> No, it sounds really like, impressive. And don't don't yeah. be overwhelmed by that because it's not. Once you actually start doing it and you know that you've got those things in order, it just falls into place because everybody mm -hmm. wants to. As again, I'm going to go back to what I said before: is everybody wants to do well and they want to do well mm -hmm. by their students. We get really emotionally attached to our students, mm -hmm. and we want them to actually achieve. And boy, do we get chuffed when they even make the smallest progress. But and when we see that we've had a little bit of a hand in it, we actually think you know that we've done the learning as well, rather than the fact that the child has so yeah, yeah. so oh that's so. lovely no I, th I think it's excellent it's excellent to hear about a really well thought out process as well like you yeah. guys always done some reflection on it too mm. oh, lots all yeah. the way along that yeah. reflection and that um rethinking of it as well has to go from the very beginning as you go along as you review always and it's really important i've found over the years that i've been teaching to stop if it's not working and just redo it's not a failure it's not a failure it's a it's oh we misunderstood oh we didn't take yeah. into account oh we uh, didn't realize we needed to do this and it's actually going to be more detrimental to continue on with something that's not working be it community related um, school related or particularly student related rather than to stop review and re reflect on it and then um, redesign exactly because how are you to know beforehand mm -hmm. yeah. mm. Oh, great. Well, my next question is, how do you implement these strategies? So, for example, what does it look like in your classroom once you've designed the strategies? Yeah, so once we've designed the strategies, one, um, one of the things that I can't do anything unless I've actually set up my classroom management because what I've got to do is uh, set up the optimum environment for this to happen in. And if I haven't got that, then uh, none of it's going to happen because <laughs> you can have the best intentions, but if you haven't got the right situation for it to occur in, then it's going to be difficult to implement even the basic differentiation strategies or um, cultural strategies or social implementation strategies, any, anything like that. So what I, when I first get my students, I have a really big, I spend a whole week just telling, letting them tell me about them because what they bring to the classroom is you. You bring you to the classroom and I also want them to understand that they're here for a reason. They're not here because they've been told to. They're not here because they have to. They're not here because their parents will get in trouble if they're not at school. Mm -hmm. They're here because they're doing something that's going to hopefully benefit them. And uh, they want to hopefully end up wanting to learn to do themselves, not a favour, but to do themselves right by them to make sure that they can learn to their best of their ability. So that's what I spend the whole week under getting them to understand how you're going to make it great for you. Mm. And that's really good. But then I also get them to understand how you're going to make it great for others. <laughs> because it's, it's if you're going to be so self-centred that you're actually only in the classroom for you, then it's not going to work. My classroom is a very social classroom and it's a very much we look out for each other kind of classroom. It's in, uh, so we're all in this together. It's one of the mm -hmm. phrases I use a lot. 
And so understanding and being understood is where I start my classroom from. And before I do any strategies or any plans or anything, any, anything there where I want to make changes happen. So we get to understand each other and we get to understand ourselves. Yeah. When I've got the older students, I do that a lot with, by doing philosophy. We do a lot of philosophy and um, understanding why I get cranky, understanding why I'm um, annoyed today, understanding all of those little things that, uh, that happen that can disrupt a classroom. Yes, understanding why I'm like feeling setting up yeah a classroom though that's like emotionally safe but also culturally safe identity wise exactly exactly mm -hmm. and that's my plan before you do any anything else mm -hmm. so I spend quite I it's it goes over the whole of term one but mm -hmm. it really really the deep part of it happens in week one and week two so I don't get a lot of, I don't do any testing or anything like that I just do it as get let's get to know you and let's get to know each other and let's understand that you can't do yourself a favour without actually doing somebody else a favour. You've yeah. actually got to help others to understand yourself as well and trying to get them to realise it's a safe place. Yeah. That you're allowed to be you as well. Mm. I get students in my classroom who say sorry all the time. Mm. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. And they're sorry for being clever or they're sorry for being um, answering a question or they're sorry for being themselves basically. And I get I quite a few of them who have uh, never had a friend. Mm. And I get quite a few of them who have never been to a birthday party Aww. or have never been to um, a park to play with yeah. other children, been invited because they consider themselves socially awkward and they are often on the spectrum, the autistic spectrum as well. But this situation, it fits even with our Indigenous students as well because they're often isolated. Yeah. And so getting them to have a clear understanding of themselves. The next thing we then do is have clear behaviour expectations <laughs> that are written down and they mm. sign a contract with me. We do yeah. it as a forum. We do it like Socrates. We ask questions about what do you expect, what do you think we should. We have to, and because they then have a say in it, they then own it. And I've mm -hmm. also got a recourse back if they're not doing it to say, but you signed this, you said this. Do we now need to adjust this? Mm -hmm. And then we might have another forum. It goes back to what I said before about that constant adjustment. It just doesn't happen once. It happens all the time. Oh. You're talking to them. And the more they deeply understand about why they're having these behaviours, and don't interfere with anybody else's learning, the more the classroom becomes self-monitoring. And mm. I don't have to say yeah. it, the children monitor each other. Mm. And after that, after we've got the social emotional side, we look at the academic expectations and I ask them to write down what they want to do. And often they'll say, I don't know. And I'll say, okay, I want you to just think of one thing. I'll get, and I'll narrow it down for them. Mm -hmm. And it might be just, I want to be able to um, spell well, or I want to be, you know, those sorts of things. That's the academic side of it. I had a very similar thing too, like even the Northern Territory in New South Wales as well, you would offer them the chance to build an aspiration and say, what do you want to do? What do you want to be good at? But a lot of the times because they'd been told they weren't good at it or they weren't for it, they would just say, oh, oh I don't know, because it's safer to not try in some it's way. It's very much safer. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. also um, one of the parts of coming in academically is that I always say to them, if you don't make mistakes, I'm going to be very disappointed. And they look at me and they go, Oh, no, 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 but I, I'm supposed to know everything. I went, no, you're not. In fact, if you're not challenging yourself and putting yourself in a situation where you are under slight stress and you are actually being challenged and you are actually failing, then you're not doing your learning 
mm. any, any, any good at all because of the fact that you're not challenging yourself. You're also not understanding how it feels to fail and be put in and what you actually then have to do to do that situation. And you've got to be careful with that because some children have failed all the time. So there's, you need to be building them up as well. So you, that's where the teacher understanding and better teacher experience comes in as well. But in my situation that if they've got the, if we've got the understanding of who they are and if we've got the understanding of this is a safe place and we've got the understanding is that I will tell them that I'm really enjoying their company, yeah. which sounds strange for a teacher to say that, then they would be, feel comfortable to fail. And when they do fail, I go, wow, that's awesome. And then they laugh and I go, because, okay, what do we have to do now? How are we going to make sure that you now hold it? What can you do to make sure that we know that you know the answer? And sometimes I'll actually give them the answer and says, let's work backwards. Here it is. And they'll go, what? I say, here's the answer. We're having trouble with this. So here's the answer. Let's work backwards and see how we can get to that. Which for some teachers, they find that a little bit, a bit weird because isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? But I don't want them under stress, stress. I want yeah. them under positive stress to try yeah. and under, because life is going to throw at them so many things that are going to make them feel as though they're failures mm -hmm. that I want them to learn how to actually get out of that, how to actually emotionally get out of that, how to academically get out of that as well. Yeah. It relieves so much pressure when you, you feel like your teacher is on your side. Yeah. Particularly if you are an Indigenous student where, like, I know a lot of Indigenous students pass through their schooling without resonating with any of their teachers because they're either not Indigenous, they don't understand history or heritage, and they still feel quite isolated. And a lot of them put up a facade, and it's a yes. very good facade. If you didn't know, you would not think that, that student every day is panicking about coming to school because they're scared of being called on this and that. Often they're quite boisterous or they're the class clown mm. or they'll joke about it, they won't do their work. Mm. One of the little techniques I do is I stand at my door as they walk in and I say good morning to every single one of them. At mm. the moment, I say good morning with hand sanitizer in my hand. <laughs> but, um, but, um, I make sure and I can tell by because I know them quite well by the look on their face what the kind of morning they've had yeah. and I may then go over later on to talk to them about that whether or not they're okay sometimes it does need just a, um, a little bit of a touch on the shoulder as well mm -hmm. to say you know and they sort of realize I, they really now if they need me they'll come up and because we have um, silent reading in the morning often because they love coming in and mm -hmm. doing that and then someone will probably pop over and talk to me quietly during yeah. that one as well because it's a safe space then the next thing I do in my classroom after I've done all of that, and that sounds like a lot, but then we do physically our needs in the classroom as well. I actually am really lucky to have a flexible classroom, so flexible furniture. So my kids have a lot of cushions to sit on. We have desks to stand at. We have desks to sit at. We, but my children move furniture around in my room all the time. So because it's not, it's not my classroom, it's theirs. And this is a big change from when, from when I was talking about 37 years ago. Anybody who moved my furniture right way back when I first started teaching, I would go, I beg your pardon? This is my room. This is the way I want it. Now I will walk in and all of a sudden it may take five, 10 minutes where the kids have moved the furniture around to suit them for the day. Yeah. As to anyone listening, I have never experienced a classroom like mum. Sometimes you come in, the kids are talking, you can barely hear you and you go, no, it's great. They're talking about science. I know it's good. And they'll start moving things around. They go, oh, run up and go, can I, can I just go outside with this ball? Can I want to maybe throw this over here and see if he can hit it here and it will go this fast like in maths this morning. And mum will go, yeah, that sounds really fun. Tell me how the experiment goes. And so, and that's the question though, because we've set all of that up. So they actually know the expectations of going outside. Yeah. It's, and so they have to come back and then report back to me about what they did as yeah. well. And what I found is that by giving them some choice in just their space, 
it gives them the choice in the way that they want to learn as mm. well. And the fact that they um, have a, if I'm feeling like I'm really tired today because I've just had an argument with my mum, I really want to just read on a cushion. Yeah. And so I also have, and you've got to remember this will not work in every classroom, but in my classroom, I have a flexible timetable as well. So they'll have their day up on the board. And if it doesn't require explicit teaching from me, they'll be able to finish that in whatever order. And they just have to come to me and say, I'm moving on from here and what they're doing. Yeah. And for some of the children, that's a big learning task because it's all about time management. And these yeah. children are just about to go to high school. So if they don't have the time management, a lot of them aren't going to succeed. My intention is to turn these into independent learners at whatever level they're at. Yeah. And woe be it to anybody who says to me, oh, this child struggles, so therefore he can't be an independent learner. And I go, no, 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 because I have three teachers under me at the moment. And I just go, no, 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 this is what I want you to do. And we go and we devise a plan to slowly get that mm -hmm. child into a situation where they do feel in control. Because it is often that they don't know because they've never been taught yeah. how to take control of their own learning because they are having difficulties or they are struggling and people think they just have to give them stuff all the time instead of actually teach them stuff on how to do that independent stuff on their own. And for me, it goes back to you know, the gradual release of responsibility module as well. Yeah. A lot of these people are participating in relationships where the teacher is the holder and just gives things to the student. The student's not really buying in or taking ownership. They don't have yeah. the responsibility. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the final thing that happens is we want the learning to be real and relevant and respectful. Mm -hmm. So what I look at is I look at the outcomes and then we have a big discussion in the classroom about how we're going to learn that. <laughs> so I've gone from being told an out, um, what to learn, what to teach, to me now asking my children what they already know. Mm. And I don't have to do that bit. <laughs> and then where we want to go from there and the questions, again, I'm a big, as I said to you before, Socrates is a big main person, a philosopher in my, in my life. And so we do a lot of questioning. We, ask, we write a lot of questions related to the units. And then they will then take one of those questions and go with it. And that's how I will um, structure my explicit teaching from what's happened. And also a lot of those um, high intensity and really, really valuable learning strategies such as collaborative learning, questioning, feedback, differentiated learning, all of those, that's where that would happen. Mm -hmm. But I actually ask my children's voice, regardless of whether they, in, uh, I've done some kindergarten work as well. And when I'm in the kindergarten class, I do exactly the same thing with them as I would with a year six class as well. And therefore, I feel like I'm making it suit the child and they actually do better because they're interested in it. And there are some things where I actually have to do explicit teaching, but um, and that's you know, and topics of that, but that's okay because I understand that, and that's the time, and then we go on from there. But mm. it's a lot of questions and asking them a lot of open ended questions where we mm. then have to go and find the answer, still ticking the boxes, still ticking the outcomes, but just in a way where they feel as though they have a really big say in their learning, mm. and therefore have really high engagement and I have really positive outcomes as well. I find that really resonates with me too, particularly everything I know about, you know, Indigenous decisions and community-based mm -hmm. things. It's mm -hmm. not a decision made by one person who's the head of me and tell me what to do. We decide it together. Yes, yeah. yes. What have, what's happened too in the classroom as well, and this happens a lot now, um, thankfully, with when we're uh, doing Aboriginal studies, you know, <laughs> the way it used to be called. I'm not joking. That's what it used to be called. Now when we're doing any topic, we actually build into and embed the Aboriginal philosophies and the Aboriginal studies into the actual unit we're doing. It's not an extra. It's mm -hmm. not an add-on. It's a part of. It's just as because we are a part of 
this country. So mm. it is just a part of. So um, as a teacher learning about her own Aboriginal heritage I've, heritage, I've done a lot of Aboriginal cultural and services as well. I'm mm. actually a part of my local AECG. I'm a part of my, um, my extended family where we're looking into some things related to uh, the Bundjalung people. And I'm just getting in contact with an elder at the moment to see what we can do from there. But in my actual classroom, if we're studying space, we, we study Aboriginal astronomy as part of the study. We, um, t we teach the Aboriginal languages and words taught alongside word origins such as Greek and Latin. Mm. We do um, novels like Bert Stick and Burumbi Kids, Took the Children Away, Dark Emu, My Place. My Place is great because it's not just the Aboriginal perspective, but it's got migrants and it's got um, Europeans as well and all of those sorts of things into it as well. So it's really, really easy to make it a really valued an ordinary part of yeah. the syllabus as well. We do Aboriginal mapping techniques when we're doing maths. We don't just do dot paintings either. We actually study, now I'm gonna make sure I try and get her name right. We actually study contemporary artists that are in the National Gallery, such, and I'm gonna look at her name, Emily Kame Kinware, I think. I'm hoping, I do apologize for her if I've said her name wrong, but she's actually in the National Gallery of Australia and Vincent Amagera who won the Archibalds. Okay. We do bush tucker. We actually look at um, Aboriginal management in bushfires. We do actually study Aboriginal history. And this like really, and really in year six, we're looking at the massacres. And this is really, really good because um, it wasn't done when I was little. Mm. It wasn't done when I was first starting to teach. It was like hidden history. Mm. It was like history that nobody spoke about. We play Indigenous games in sport. Mm. And in PD, we discuss different language structures, sorry, family structures. Yeah. And the way that they actually and different rules, and we look and we recognise and celebrate. Sorry, Day Nadoc Week, all of those. We've just actually celebrated Aboriginal Indigenous Day, even though we were a week late, but that was okay, and the kids are still having that. Our school has a totem we were given to us by our local Darug people, as well. Our school is also covered via um, them in murals that are associated with the stories of the Darug Nation as well. So what what I'm trying to say is that we deliberately include as an ordinary part of our mm. designing strategies and implementing effective teaching strategies that respond to our local community, their linguistic and history needs. It doesn't stand alone, but it's woven. It's deeply woven into the ordinary events in the units that we study. And then it gives us as though this is an ordinary and everyday thing that we should be doing. And yeah. um, because it is such a deep part of our histories and our currents and our futures. Yeah, that also really resonates with me. I think that's a really fantastic, showing how it can fit into every subject too. Yeah. And also that it's just such a natural and accepted part. Because I don't know about you, something, there's two things I dislike and they're the polar opposites, you know, and either Indigenous people aren't included or they're included so much because like people are bending over backwards like, oh, it's so fantastic. This, like, that's mm -hmm. too much for me. Like, exactly, I exactly. Know, I know that we need to have some reparations, but it also should be accepted as a regular part of teaching that everyone exactly. likes that. It's, yeah, exactly. So when we're teaching migration for one of our history units, you do um, the Aboriginal perspective, then you do the Greek perspective, then you do the mm. Italians and the Chinese from the gold rush perspective, then you do the European perspective. So it's all of them together and all of them together make that one Australian history. Yeah. And that and all then, of them yeah. together. 
Yeah. And yeah. that gives children and like, especially like when you're in school, like an early childhood center, you get your understanding, a well-rounded understanding where everything fits together and there's no invisible histories. Mm-hmm. And yes, I understand, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories need to be emphasized, particularly now so we can overcome, you know, genocide attempted, things like that. But that's my goal too, eventually, is this natural, ordinary part that people study and it's accepted, valued, but not this intimidating thing. So I think when you put on a pedestal, it's intimidating for teachers. It's, um, and it also means that they can tick off the little box and say, oh, I've done that, mm. and then not touch it again. And we're striving from our school to actually make sure that it's not a one that, you know, we, some, we do have our events where we might have NADOC Day or NADOC Week as well, but it's also the kids think this is just a natural part of also having a um, Jersey Day or, you know, <laughs> all of those sorts of things because this is what you do. Um, the Aboriginal history is part of our nation and the uh, Christmas is part of our nation. Easter is yeah, part yeah. of our nation, you know, that, that they consider that it's right to celebrate. So therefore, it's just part of. There is always going to be, thankfully, the explicit need for teaching, sorry, the explicit need for teaching explicit history and mm. knowledge, but that's with everything. Yeah. And again, that shouldn't be different from any other thing that you're teaching because if you need to do the explicit part of it, you do, but then you also still make sure that it's woven deeply into the syllabus itself. Yeah, and you know what, when I reflect on that, I think that's when, you know, if you think, if you contemplate your identity, that's when I would feel truly accepted, not as though everyone think about now, the Aboriginal people as an add-on to this lesson, blah, 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 mm. despite it's being taught, mm. but you feel truly accepted when your information is represented equally with others. What's interesting mm. too is at my school, we only have four Indigenous students. So yeah. the majority of the students at our school still, though, expect to be taught the Aboriginal perspective mm-hmm. because we started that at kindergarten. So by mm-hmm. the time we get them to year six, they will say, uh, okay, let, what, let's look at the perspectives we look at. Let's look at the European, the, the Italian, let's, uh, sorry, uh, any other, anything that's coming yeah. up, the Chinese perspective. In my class, I have a Korean student, a Chinese student, an Indian student. So we also look at those. I have a Muslim student. So we look at hers. We look mm-hmm. at the, um, I also have a Baha'i. So we look at that. So mm-hmm. that's where you knowing your students really well, you make sure that you cover all of the perspectives, but you make sure that they're done well and yeah. deeply. And with the, um, the lovely Latifa, she's, um, her parents have helped us along the, with the, the Muslim studies as well. So yeah. it's again going back to what we originally said, where we said, let's use the community. Let's ask them. What's, yeah. their impo- what's important to them? I don't know about you, but I've always found people being very willing to help. Oh, so, yeah. I have to assist with this. Like, they understand yeah. how it is. Yeah. yeah. And I've had teachers who say, oh, I can't do that because I'm not Aboriginal. I can't do that because I don't know anything about it. I can't do that because I'm a fr- scared of offending and being mm-hmm. disrespectful. And I just say to them, ask, 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 mm-hmm. get yourself in service, get yourself up, your knowledge up, and then have a go. Nobody's going to be cranky with you because you had a go. If you do it wrong, then fix it and do it again right next time. But if you're asking your community, they will help you because they want it done well as well. Yeah, they, they want to look after their kids. They mm-hmm. want to help you look after other kids. Mm-hmm. But they also, i found too, they also just want you to be part of their mob. <laughs> so, and they want you to understand because this is the whole point of it because previously nobody asked them. 
Do you know what? That actually segues us so well into the other standard we're looking at today is 2.4, which is understand and respect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to promote reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And it's funny that you mentioned that because my first question would have been, you know, what does understand and respect mean to you? But I feel like we're naturally sort of going into that conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really interesting because... Um, Again, I'm a because I'm a nerd, bit of a nerd. The, understa the understanding means to perceive intended meaning in a particular way. Respect means a deep aberration of somebody or something elicited by their abilities in regards to their feelings, their wishes, and the rights of others. So, when you're understanding someone or something, you need to equip yourself with the knowledge of their past, of their present, of their future. You need to empathise with their past, their present, their experiences and to then share with their current and future experiences with them and to empathise with their emotional self. You can't understand someone if you don't have that deep knowledge of it. It's just like mm -hmm. somebody just passing a comment saying that all refugees should be sent home. You can't say things like that because you don't, you've got to actually have that deep understanding. But to have the deep understanding, you actually have to go out and get some knowledge. You have to equip yourself with that knowledge of their past, the present and the, and the mm. future as well. I always say the future because I want to move forward. Mm. I want to make sure that we're actually understanding that we're doing this understanding part. We're doing this empathy and respectful part because we want to move forward together as a nation, as a people, as teachers, as students into a positive future that um, then can be transferred onto others as well. And so, surely that's also the spirit of reconciliation, yeah. yeah. Not dwelling on the past, we're looking forward. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, there's a really old saying that says, you know, to understand somebody, you need to walk in their shoes. Mm -hmm. and, and while that's good, I actually think that um, you need not only to walk in their shoes, but to walk side by side with them as well, helping each other along the way. Because when you understand somebody, what you don't realise is that they're also understanding you. Because um, sometimes... Uh, the understanding goes mutually mm. uh, it's mutually beneficial and it's it's really interesting too because often that when you have that understanding that's when the respect comes yeah and it, there's also the inclusivity comes and the development of regard for them as a people yeah. and it makes you want what's best for them as well and it makes you want them to be around them and it makes them because you then have this wonderful word which is relationships and then you actually your relationship with them and your relationship uh, with yourself starts to be a lot more positive and a lot deeper and it just makes you smile yeah you know what really strikes me about that when you mentioned you know the importance of symbiotic relationships both people getting two out of it mm. I think that's something that's come really far too in working with indigenous communities is that we can't just go to them and extract knowledge as well you need no. to build relationships yeah yeah and that comes with time and some people say oh i haven't got the time but you've got the time to do the things that are important to you so i, I sort of say look just make a little bit of time and you'll find that those relationships will last a long long time and they they just warm your heart it's just wonderful yeah it's just one of those ones where I have students now who are having their own babies and they're still emailing me saying, oh, Mrs. S, I just wanted you to know that um, so and such is happening. Or another one saying, Mrs. S, can you help me with this? And they have been my students for 10, 15 years. But it's because they, uh, they can't, I still understand that I'm still a safe place. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm also still wanting to know. I have a, an emotional attachment to them and I'm wanting to know that they are doing well and that I wish them well as well.
yeah it's which is tough, interesting yeah. it's tough to walk anywhere back home without someone saying oh mrs Sutherland, mrs Sutherland, oh, hello how are you i've never i've never, never forgotten your year five or six class <laughs> well it, it makes us feel as though we've our purpose in life is one of the ones to um, make people feel better about themselves not just the learning side it's the actual inner person that we're aiming for. And I think if we look at it, and we're going back right to the very beginning of this conversation, if we look at the beginning of it where the first thing you need to do is to look at them as an emotional person and socially and see what they need that way and get all of that hopefully to a place where they then can learn, then we're going to set them up to have a life where they can cope through the stresses and strains of it and hopefully do well academically as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, if we turn, say, to the classroom, what do you think is required to promote reconciliation there? If you look at the reconciliation website, I, they just sum it up so beautifully. At its heart, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between mm -hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and non-Indigenous people for the benefit of all Australians. You can't mm. say it any better than that. You can't. <laughs> so it's not in my classroom. I promote relationships between the students, myself and the school and all the rest of it. But from an Indigenous perspective, you just cannot say it any better than that. Mm. So the heart of every classroom is forming, forming, strengthening, developing, sharing relationships with everyone in the class. And once you've done that, it benefits everyone. That's why I spend two weeks just looking at yourself and yeah. looking at each other mm. and the emotional and social side that we're looking at. And that's what we aim for anyway. So it's not a stretch to aim for that with our Indigenous and our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students as well. And their community. Don't forget that. It's not just the students we're looking at. We're looking at the community as well. Because the, the school is a little hub for the community as well. And if you do that, then you'll find that the kids will be there, the, the parents will be there, and everybody will be having this uh, really lovely time getting to know each other, forming relationships, and the learning will happen naturally. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say there's anything you do that particularly promotes reconciliation while you're teaching? I think having the, because I, we have such a low percentage of Indigenous students at our school, we're embedding all of our things into our, our syllabus helps as well. So mm -hmm. by just making it a natural form. Just, just naturally, it's just something that you do. It's not even expecting the kids to be reconciled. It's expecting the kids to know that these, uh, this lovely group of people are just a natural part of Australian society and should be treated with respect and understanding, just like you would treat anybody with respect and understanding, just like you would treat um, the people of different faiths with respect yeah. and understanding as well. We invite our community in, so we promote reconciliation by that, not just to events, though, we actually invite them to discuss school curricula and with community needs and we want that two-way relationship where we go to them but also they come to us mm. and we want that takes time and we want that to we actually give them a voice mm. to us we ask surveys all the time about whether we should do this how we should do this so in the olden days when i first started teaching we just did it regardless of what anybody else wanted to oh that'll be a good idea let's do that there was no consultation, really. We just sort of, oh, we've got this, let's do it. Mm. Um, I like to um, promote reconciliation as well by asking the students, and I've mentioned this before, to respond to the events discussions as well, that to give them a voice and that they are recognised and that they also can be self-determining. Mm. That's really important, really, really important. We celebrate the events throughout the year, and there's quite a number of them, which is great because it keeps us... Um, 
focused and it keeps us current and it keeps us in people's mindset, not just once a year. And I think that's important. Having a murals around the school help as well because all of the kids have a handprint that our current students have a handprint on the wall somewhere. And we have um, them come in uh, quite a lot to actually do not just the events, but also just hang around the school <laughs> and say hello so that people get to know our local Indigenous people as well. Our school song is based on our totem, oh, which yeah. is the self-crested cockatoo. And it was written that way. We have our totem also um, in our school song and our school uniform. And we also have a little, a little puppet one as well that goes um, as part of our good listening at our assemblies as well. So you get Garraway every time if you want, and he's, he's very coveted. So <laughs> but we promote it. Um, with, when you go to seniors too, you need to discuss the hard topics like Marbo, like the massacres, like those as well, to get them to deeply understand trauma. I mean, they're yeah. old enough to understand that as well. And then to deeply understand how... The, and this is an interesting thing too, how the trauma of our Indigenous people can actually help you understand trauma in your own life. So that it's really interesting how that they connect that history, that awful history, with something that they may be able to help them in their own history now as well. So what we do hopefully best to, to do reconciliation is to promote whenever it genuinely arises yeah. that the Indigenous population are valued, are respected, and but they're more than that. They're just a natural, integral, and continuous part of our school life, of our studies, of our situation, of our community, of our learning. And with that, it forms a part of our shared identity locally, nationally, and of us as a person as Australians. Yeah. Oh. So, so it's oh. not just, yeah, yeah, so it's not just the things we do. But it's mostly how the things we think. Yeah, I and think what you're modeling, the way in which you're acting, it really mm. breaks a lot of stereotypes too. Mm. Well, and that's what we're hoping. Understanding, and there's also, you know, perceiving it when you're young. That challenges the mm. things that you may be told by other people. And you can think, well, mm. that's not like how it was when I saw it. And like, yeah. Right. And also, um, I think it's lovely that it's now flipped. And this has only happened in the last two years as we've been really, really doing this with my class. And maybe it's the way that I'm teaching it, I don't know. But that where they flip and use the um, Aboriginal histories and Aboriginal ways of living and understanding and identify with that's the way that they would like to do it because they consider it relational. That's so and, yeah, I and that. I, yeah, a lot of our children have parents who work all the time. Mm, and yeah. a lot of our students have, have um, are very isolated in the way that they think and they quite they latch on to the idea of family and they latch on to everyone helping each other and they latch on mm -hmm. to the idea that to be respectful means to understand and to value that person mm -hmm. as and not just as the person because they're giving you stuff but because they are in your life and hopefully will help you grow positively. Yeah. Oh. You've given me so much to think about. Thank you so much for coming and being our guest speaker. I'm sure everyone listening is just clapping at home. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. My final thought would be to never hesitate to do something as a teacher as well that you don't know because it's scary or you don't know. Um, be bothered. Get yourself, go out there, find out where you can actually upskill yourself. 
ask questions in your local community, even that we've done that even with only the fact that we've got four students, we still yeah. do all of this, because it's important for them to understand, um, and us as, as teachers, as lifelong learners as well, to understand that um, this is part of the normal everyday Australia. Yes, and, everyone, and to, whether you're Indigenous yeah, or Indigenous. That's yeah. right. And so if we get that understanding, then everything just flows naturally and then becomes that lovely little circle that I live my life by, where what goes around comes around. And mm -hmm. so um, uh, give it a go, ask questions. Don't be afraid to make mistakes, just like you want your kids in your classroom to do. And just mm -hmm. enjoy every moment of it because the deep knowledge that you will learn and the feelings and the emotions that come with it are just an awesome way to experiences, to have some of those experiences in your life and your teaching career. So good luck. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you everyone for listening along. I'll see you soon. Thank you again. Goodbye. See you later everyone. Bye.